Richard, welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's been a while since we've had the pleasure of chatting to each other, and I'm very happy to see your smiling face on the other side of my computer screen today. It's always fun to be here. This is my first episode in quite a while because I've been a combination of lax, delinquent, uh, stressed, pandemically challenged, just surfing the wave of the decline of American democracy and uh, recovering from the previous four years of insanity. How has the last several weeks been for you? I don't think uh, anybody uh, would, wouldn't be able to identify with how uh, stressful and uh, weird it's felt, you know. Uh, I am somebody who's always paid a lot of attention to politics, um, but uh, it's really nice to reach a point where it feels like it's okay to turn it off a little bit and to, and to uh, disengage. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, frustrating things that are still going on. It looks more and more like we're going to be in kind of a holding pattern as far as what, uh, what I'd like the Democrats to be able to get done. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel... Uh, a certain liberty to disengage for a while. Yeah, I think that's the thing is I just haven't felt like I could just really escape into a movie or a TV series or anything. Probably like in the last few weeks of the Trump administration when shit was getting really crazy, I was just reverting to comfort watching. I was watching a show called The Repair Shop on Netflix, which is a British, you know, one of those sort of British confections of calm, wonderful people with great skills working in a beautiful thatched antiquarian repair shop where other pleasing British people bring family heirlooms of great emotional value that are in need of repair and the loving and caring craftspeople fix them and return them to their loving and caring owners. And that, that's where I was at emotionally and mentally, my ability to absorb content. I didn't want to see any, you know, I didn't want to see anything that challenged anything other than just comfort. What, what did right. you, what did you, what was your go? I mean, were you just mainlining politics or were you, were you, were you escaping? Was I mainlining politics? Yeah, I think I was. I mean, I, I mean, I think that, that I was in a constant phase of trying to um, try and control my behavior, you know, I have this compulsive behavior towards refreshing my screens and, um, you know, I, I worked on my uh, on my creative projects and trying to sort of like block out time where I where I would put myself on a on a total media blackout so that I would have to stop thinking about um, about what was going on and then go back and revisit it. But it was very hard to resist. Um, and one of the things that you know I've found is somebody who is uh, you know very uh, anti uh, anti the last administration is that you almost get. Um, almost now that it's it's over and they've sort of taken Trump off the air that, um, yeah, kind of, I find myself having, surprisingly having kind of a Jones for it. I know, it's so sick. That's the sickness of him is, uh, I honestly think that he, the comparison I make is he's he is the world's alcoholic stepfather who finally has left the house for the last time after four years of terrorizing the family that he held hostage. And having lived through that myself as a young child, it, it, I'm not kidding when I say it's the exact same sort of emotional reaction that I have to this experience, which is, 
you don't really have the ability to process how bad things were, how normalized terrible behavior and actions had become because you're in survival mode while it's going on. You're just trying to live day to day. And of course, when you're a child, it's both much more complicated and also simpler in the sense that you can devise various means of escape. But I think to me, that's what it really felt like. It felt like he's finally leaving on this day. You know, the divorce is going to go through. Uh, right. He's going to pack up his shit and he's going to get in the car. And that's going to be the last time I'm ever going to have to live under the same roof with this person. And the difference is afterwards, you don't Jones for more of that. You don't miss the person. You don't miss the dysfunction. But I think we did become so used to that adrenaline hit of outrage that he would contribute hourly on Twitter, fights that he would pick, ridiculous things that he would do. And I think we all have to admit we do we miss the mess because that's something kind of human and fucked up about us that we, we, I don't know if like it is the right word, but our dopamine responds to it. Right. There's something, there's some, there's something psychological about, um, uh, you know, needing to know what, you know, what, what the next crazy thing is and how can, you know, like, and like I said, it's almost, it's almost like chasing a high or something, you know? It is. Yeah. Yeah. We were addicted to him. Um, but, we're also glad to go cold turkey and just never have to see or hear from him again, ideally, which I don't think will be the case given the craven reality of several Republican leaders who seem to be crawling their way back to whatever they believe he is going to provide them as if there's not enough overwhelming evidence in the world that there is no loyalty for him to anyone else. Um, there is only him. And, and if you plead fealty to him and serve him, you don't win. You don't come out of that. Nobody who, who in his orbit is, is not completely destroyed through proximity. I mean, look at Rudy Giuliani, who went from America's mayor to the biggest clown show in the history of presidential sycophants. And the only people who emerge kind of unscathed are people like Chris Christie, who sort of were shunned at the beginning through you know, perceived slights to the Kushner family. So he wasn't admitted into a cabinet position or given an attorney generalship. And because he was kind of shunted aside, he he wasn't part of it in a way that, you know, you can't paint him with the same brush. You could paint someone like Pence, who, although he did several of the right things when it counted most in the end game here, you know, still cravenly served this master for four years. Um, yeah. Well, I think the really interesting thing is going to be uh, whether these um, certain uh, certain clowns in the unit in the Senate can actually sort of pick up the mantle or not, because that's what they believe they can. The mm -hmm. uh, the the Hollies and the Cruises and the um, and uh, several other people who feel like that that um, like they're like they could be the heir apparent to this uh you know this group of maniacs and um you know it's just it's just there's no way to know how that whether whether they're do, whether they're doing damage to their own brand or not there is a way to know they are there is no there's only trump it's a cult and he's the cult leader it's not like you can be jim jones too you know it's like there's only room for jim jones up there on the podium i'd like to believe that we'll see <laughs> One other thing, this is a little off the topic, but um, um, we were talking, you were talking about the, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
treating it like a divorce. So one of the mm -hmm. things that I've gotten into this month is right at the beginning of January on Antenna TV, they started running this show one day at a time. Oh, excellent. Um, and Your boy, Glenn Scarpelli. Well, not only is Glenn Scarpelli, but he comes on <laughs> later at the, he doesn't come into like the fifth or sixth season. But this whole thing about a divorced woman in her 30s breaking away from her husband in order to go and establish, you know, her own identity mm -hmm. is so weird for me as, you know, a child of divorce in the 70s, live, you know, being raised by a single mom who has just all of this, uh, like the story is so mm -hmm. um, compellingly similar to my own and probably a lot of other people who are our age and kids of divorce. Uh, but the, I mean, the, uh, the Bonnie Franklin character of this show is the same age as my mother, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, and this is all happening in almost, it's almost feel, feels like, um, like, uh, like it's happening. Yes. Like, like it's happening and it sequentially with what was happening in my mm -hmm. life at the same time. And I'm so into this show one day at mm. a time. Are you finding that you're kind of seeing yourself as a young child, your, your experiences through watching this story arc progress on the series? Yeah. I feel like I'm watching my parents, but I mean, do you, are you processing anything differently or coming to terms with things perhaps that happened then because you're able to kind of experience it through this filter? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly my point is that, um, I'm seeing my mother differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, I'm now at a point of the show where they've, they've brought in on, uh, 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 this great actor, Joe Campanella plays. Love Joe the, Campanella. Yeah. He's so great. He's a really great actor. He's a really good uh, actor. And they bring him in as the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the you know the the every other weekend uh, dad on the show, and um, uh, while there's a uh, there's there's one half of it which is really identifying with my with my own mother's feelings with Anne Romano the character as a filter. I'm also now beginning to sort of like revisit my dad's position because I was pretty mm. not really close to my dad, my entire mm -hmm. life. And, and I don't know if I'm just like creating a fantasy about Joe Campanella being a better dad than the one that I had, but um, I'm, much, I'm much more sympathetic to the dad than I used to be. I think that's fascinating because, you know, I think a lot of times movies and TV shows give you the opportunity to sort of have a little bit of a distance from something that happened maybe in your own household that at the time, again, you know, in the language of addiction and recovery or whatever, you learn skills in order to survive that later on in life perhaps don't serve you so well because you're no longer in a life or death survival situation. Um, I've experienced this, you know, in the last year or so with our own daughter entering an age when things in the home I grew up in as a third grader and a fourth grader were getting really, really complicated because my mom was remarried. My stepfather was an alcoholic. And we went from this rather idyllic, still divorced life because kindergarten, first grade, second grade, it was me and my mom living with our animals in our you know, apartment in Hamden and had uh, kind of an idyllic childhood up to that point. I went to an amazing school that was progressive and cool for you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And, um, and then this other thing happened that was just like a bomb exploded and nobody could figure out what was going on. 
And it's only until I sort of was able to observe another child being the same age that in a way I was able to kind of look and realize that I was that age when things were going on for me. And somehow that opened up stuff that I hadn't really thought of and explored since that time. Because again, it was just like I compartmentalized and walled off in order to get through the experience. And then I'm looking at this child and realizing, oh my God, eight years old, nine years old is so young and so still yet to be formed as a person. And to think of me as this little child going through those things, I couldn't really think about it until I saw and was the parent to an eight or a nine-year-old and thinking like, oh my God, wow. So I think in a way, when you're talking about watching that show, it's kind of a similar experience where whoever was writing and involved in that, obviously that was sort of the, that was the era of divorce too. If you remember, like, I don't know if it was the same where you grew up, but in the neighborhood where my mom and I moved to, uh, if your parents were divorced, that was like a weird thing. You were sort of, you were a little bit of an outcast for that at that time. I was made fun of for being the child of divorce. Was it the same where you grew up? It wasn't so much that I was made fun of. It was, uh, I definitely got weird treatment. Uh, I remember I was in the Cub Scouts and the, the, you know, the mom who was the leader of the Cub Scout troop, uh, they needed some, they needed another mom to come help. And she kind of cornered me and she was like, you, would you ask your mom if she'd be willing to be, you know, a scout mom, some den mother, I guess it was. Den mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I was very excited about, uh, <laughs> Uh, about the honor of sure. uh, my mother being invited to be a den mother. Um, and then uh, I went and I asked my mom, my mom was like, no, I'm not, the, you know, she wasn't, she's like, I don't have time for that. Yeah. I mean, my mom yeah. was raising four kids mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and a, and a full-time job and she it's had her other things that, you know, outside of her, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what few things that she could have to herself, she had to herself and all that's yeah. fine. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, my mom turned me down and then I went back to the den mother and, she, and, and uh, I told her about it and she was like, and she was like, didn't you tell me that your mother could uh, uh, ask to change her work schedule so that she would, oh, she could work four 10 hour days a week and have one day off. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess I did. And she and, he, and she said, did you ask her about that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Ease up, scout lady. Right. So, I mean, that's that's one example I can think of. But I always felt like I was being judged by other people's parents, not by other, I don't think other kids mm. cared. I, yeah. I didn't get made fun of, but I, I did feel like um, like in my interactions with other people's parents that. I was being, I was, people were asking me questions all the time about what my mother did. Listen, on another episode, we're going to have to do a movie in praise of single mothers because, you know, at that time in the seventies, it's not that it's any easier now, but I think in some ways technology and other things has made some things easier that for them was, I mean, I just remember my mom, you know, my mom had to work a lot of nights and I remember it was very hard to get babysitters. Um, And I remember the look on her face sometimes when like a brand new babysitter that she'd never met before was coming over for the first night. My mom is like leaving the apartment and, you know, driving an hour to some other meeting where she's not going to be back until after about 10 o'clock at night and just thinking, God, I hope this goes well. You know, like it's, it's, it's unfathomable in with today's eyes to think about how they navigated and managed all of that at a time when nobody was really understanding 
of what was going on. And we didn't really have the language to sort of figure that out. And probably the roles between absentee or missing fathers and mothers was different too. You know, nowadays, I think there's so much more co-parenting going on than there was then. So it's probably very different. This is all a good setup for a for a conversation about Alice doesn't live here anymore, which is not what we're here to talk thing. about. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. So we'll have to do that. We'll, let's do that in another episode. And everyone will be like, I'm tuning in to listen to a football movie. What the fuck are these guys talking about? Um, right. I was looking for a Super Bowl preview. I'm looking like I was talking for some masculinity here. What are these, what are these, what are these guys talking about? Right. Moms and Right. I thought we were going to talk about Mac Davis's naked ass. And it's John Henry. Or is John Henry or John Tom? I think it's John Henry. John Henry, yeah. Well, when I asked you to come and uh, when I was ready to kind of say like, okay, I'm ready to do a podcast again. I want to get one out. And I asked you if you had any good ideas. And after you gave me a little, you know, you gave me a little guff first and then you kind of came around. You're like, well, you shoot down all my ideas. I was like, well, you know, I'm looking for something specific. And when I, when I see it, I jump on it. Sorry, bud. Um, then you made the excellent suggestion, which this is how not smart I am. It only occurred to me about two days ago that you were probably making these suggestions because in a week's time or the week this comes out, it'll be Super Bowl week. And I didn't even think about that at all. Is that why you were making football movie suggestions? Uh, yeah. I mean, I had, uh, I've, I've been uh, a, a NFL uh, uh, boycotter for about the past five years or so. Uh, but my husband is uh, uh, still tunes in, particularly at uh, playoff time. So I was able to, I, I sat down, I watched some football uh, this past weekend for the first time in a long time. And uh, it got me thinking about how many great football movies there are. And it turned yes. out when I did a little dive on it, there were, there were a ton of football movies, not necessarily all great, but really a surprising number of, of things that we could have uh, looked into. And indeed there are, I would also posit that, alone amongst most sports, there are also more of what I would call football ennui movies. There are more movies that are about, I think of, um, God, what's the one that I can't remember now based on the great Frank DeFord novel with Dennis Quaid, Everybody's All American with uh, Jessica okay. Lange and Dennis Quaid. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's very much about former glory relied upon for too long later in life. And it has Dennis Quaid as sort of the star from college who never quite made it successfully in any other venture in his life, including his relationship with his wife. And it's much, it's very much about the navigation of, you know, when you just think everything's going to be great forever. And then one day it's, it's unceremoniously over, which is a trope in many, many football, professional football movies, right? Because I guess you have the, you have the high school football movies, all the right moves. It's a great one that you suggested, which I, had to resist the pull of because I, I, I very much would have loved to do that one. But it just so happened when I saw North Dallas 40 on your list that unrelated to any of these things, I had been going down a wormhole of the director of North Dallas 40, who I had never heard of before watching. I mean, I certainly heard of the movies and seen a couple of his movies, but I hadn't seen the one that kind of turned me on to him which is a great US-Australian co-production called Wake in Fear, which is a movie about a privileged English school teacher who is teaching sort of an indentured servitude job in a remote town in the Australian outback. And he's indebted to the company that he has to work this teaching job. He has to earn a thousand pounds in order to pay off 
this debt in order to be freed from teaching school to these bored children in the Australian outback. And he is trying to go to Sydney for his summer vacation. And he makes a stop in a town and then just a sequence of unfortunate events befalls him. And he is utterly destroyed and, and reduced to nearly an ectoplasm before dusting himself off and, and, and ending up right back where he started at the schoolhouse. And this movie was so brilliant. And so, um, sorry, there's an Amber alert going on. Kidnapped children are going to have to wait. I'm sorry. We're doing important work here. It, the movie is so brilliant is so tonally specific and shot through with such incredible menace and humor in equal measures that I was like, who is this director? And it turned out to be a guy named Ted Kotcheff, who is Canadian and directed the weirdest handful of movies that are completely different from each other, which I always think is a real true mark of someone who's a real director, you know, doesn't just do the same thing over and over again or mine the same source material, which plenty of directors do that, that we all love. But a guy like Ted Kotcheff, who made this Wake in Fear, which is this very dry Australian kind of horror movie, if you will. I think I described it as like Heart of Darkness meets Mad Max is how it really unfolds. But then he also made the first Rambo movie. <laughs> he made Weekend at Bernie's uh, and he made North Dallas 40, uh, in addition to other films like uh, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, which is Richard Dreyfuss's first film and the film that he made before he made Jaws. And Richard Dreyfuss took Jaws because he felt he was so terrible in Duddy Kravitz that he better take the next available job, even though Jaws didn't appeal to him at the time as an acting challenge. He thought his career was over. It's the only reason he ended up taking Jaws, which of course is a funny story on itself. So I was going down this Ted Kotcheff wormhole. And then when you suggested North Dallas 40, it just occurred to me that, you know, this is really like the mash of football movies. It's such a counterculture football movie. And it's one of those football ennui movies. It's about so much more than the game itself. And it's such a clear eyed look at the inhumanity of the sport, which probably has a lot to do with why you took a five-year break from watching it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, as for Ted Kotcheff, yeah, that's the, the list that you just uh, went down is, you know, it's so interesting to think of somebody that, um, you know, is not regarded necessarily as, a, uh, as an American or Canadian uh, auteur. Mm -hmm. um, but these, these movies, when you go and look at them, we, I mean, we can get into it in North Dallas 40 and others about, um, but there are just some things that are really specific to his kind of movie making, to the kind of stories that he seems to be attracted to. And, but when you can go and look at these movies from Fun with Dick and Jane to North Dallas 40 to First Blood, those movies, that string of movies that would seem like they were uh, that they were from other planets, but they actually have connection, thematic connections to each other in the way that they're made and in the stories, the kind of anti-hero stories that they mm -hmm. tell. Um, you can really begin to see this Ted Kotcheff as, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as an auteur in a way that he probably wouldn't even necessarily uh, like to be spoken of. A lot of times these guys don't want to be called auteurs. Uh, I was reading some, some of the, his uh, biography where he was talking about the, that on the one hand, he, he feels very 
fortunate that in the path of his career that he was able to, to do what he wanted to do and tell the stories that he wanted to tell and, and do things that were in all kind, all different genres of movies, but that it also was, was somewhat career debilitating to him in the sense that studios didn't know who he was and they were, <laughs> and a lot of times they didn't want to hire him as a director because they thought that what they were doing was too different from the last thing mm -hmm. that he did. Uh, or when he was in a position as a as a producer to go out and get money that people didn't want to back him for something that they thought that he was um, had it didn't have you know a, a genre or a type of movie that he didn't have experience in and so on the so you can kind of see that you know you were saying that uh, uh, you admire a director for working cross genre. Uh, but you can also understand how, how within the business of making movies that you might actually do a disservice to yourself um, if you don't sort of stick with the program. And here we are back at North Dallas 40. You're so right. That's such an amazing point because, you know, you, you, as a viewer, as an, someone who appreciates movies, you, you look at a career of someone like Ted Kotcheff. And if you look at it kind of with the right kind of eyes, you're going like, wow, there's something here that's equivalent to the way we revere and lionize Scorsese or Spike Lee or any 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 auteur that you would name, right? Who's kind of known for mining a certain row here. But you're totally right that I think, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about like a working actor and that's kind of the highest praise we could give because you look at somebody's IMDb page and you just see multiple decades of doing everything. And that's the that's really what a career can look like. And, and he has that type of career when you look at his IMDb page. He's done everything. He's done, he's done softcore porn, for crying out loud. He's, he's, I think, made his living for the last you know, 10 or 15 years on the SVU franchise or something like that, right? Like, right. And Jason, he's also published four volumes of poetry. <laughs> well, what the hell else are you going to do on set while they're setting the lights up? So, yeah, North Dallas 40, I am all in. It was such a pleasure to watch again. And by the way, watching it this time, because I've probably seen this movie 10 times, and never watched it for any kind of cinematic appreciation previously. I just watched it to be in the seventies or be in, you know, the football world or whatever it was. But this time I was sort of watching it to appreciate it as a piece of filmed entertainment and having just watched first blood, which I'd, I've never seen any Rambo movie before three or four days ago. And I think I avoided Rambo because my exposure to Rambo was kind of what came after First Blood. And I didn't really understand that there's First Blood and then there's everything else Rambo, which I think it's fair to say kind of sucks. And even though people are into that, kind of the killing machine Rambo and the thing that it became, that's not what he was doing in the First Blood movie. In fact, First Blood has a lot really in common with Norse Dallas 40 as the story of a uh, put upon outsider who is trying to figure out how he fits in within a certain ecosystem and the way it's filmed and the use of lenses is very similar. You know, that there's a lot in North Dallas 40 where he must be using sort of a very, I guess, I don't know if the proper term is a short lens, a 25 or 35 millimeter lens. Cause there's a lot of uh, bokeh in the background, right? It's a lot of kind of the, the focus of the frame is in focus and then things around it fall out of focus. And he uses that a lot through North Dallas 40 and also a lot in, um, in first blood. So it's such a iconoclastic football movie and it's so not, uh, 
it's not a waving the NFL flag movie. You know, uh, Amanda walked in when I was watching kind of the beginning the other night and it's like, it was in the party scene. And it wasn't until she kind of walked in and was like, what the hell are you watching? Cause I think Joe Bob was carrying, you know, the playboy bunny over his head or something. And it, it just looked like the worst kind of exploitation, you know, movie. Um, which if you're just walking in, you, you would understandably think that's what's going on, but it's actually such a subversive takedown of that culture. And it's showing you at such an early time, like rape culture and toxic masculinity and all of these things that are so in vogue now to talk about. And he really was eviscerating the whole concept of this, this gladiator like sport that just grinds up, you know, the bodies. I guess about the only thing that's not really in the movie, which is kind of ironic given that Peter, Peter Gent or Ghent, however you pronounce his name, that wrote the book that it's based on, you know, said a little bit that one of the things he was shocked by at the time was that the black players, because this is all sort of a Romana clef of his time with the Dallas Cowboys. Peter Gent was a wide receiver, much like Nick Nolte's character in North Dallas 40. And he, he mentions in, in a couple of things written about the movie that he was surprised that the black players weren't allowed to live in the town that surrounded the Dallas Cowboys practice facility at the time, which was in North Dallas. And that's where he got the name from the movie. It's kind of curious that that's the one sort of thing that Ted Kotcheff left out of this otherwise very prescient and eviscerating film about all of these things. He doesn't really tackle the racial angle. Maybe that's because at that time, the NFL was maybe a little bit more of a white boys club and, you know, black players were not yet the fodder for everyone else's entertainment that it would kind of grow to. I'm not sure. I don't know the history of the NFL in the early days enough, but I can imagine given American history that they were probably black players were probably excluded from, you know, the forties, fifties, sixties, early seventies of the NFL, much like they were in major league baseball until, you know, integration. So I'm not sure where that came from, but it's interesting that it's missing. Yeah. I mean, it's in there a little bit. Uh, it's noticeable when you go back and watch this film, how much the team is almost entirely, as you said, uh, you know, Southern white boys. Mm -hmm. um, the one exception of where race kind of gets um, addressed is in the tension between uh, Joe Bob, uh, the big sort mm -hmm. of like, uh, I don't know if I don't know if he's supposed to be brain damaged. Bo or, Svensson. Yeah, Bo Svensson. But between him and the uh, and some of the uh, the you know the defensive line players who are black, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. remember the scene in the movie where um, uh, Charles Jerning is reading that stupid uh, yes. thing that he allegedly <laughs> found on the locker about yes. uh, what winning is all about, and yes. They show the uh, the African American players are kind of getting into it, and they start yeah. doing a, a like a call like and a, response. Yeah, yeah, like a gospel yeah. church kind of response. Tell it, tell it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think they're serious. Not everybody in the room is serious in the way that yeah. they're at, but Joe Bob um, gets offended by that. Right. And I think what we're supposed to draw off of that is that what's going on between at least him and some of the other characters is something you know it's southern racism mm. and, yes i think uh, you're and, right and he doesn't like their kind of well i guess they're not really uh, I, I guess he just doesn't like the way that they're responding and he finds mm -hmm. it he finds it inappropriate i don't i'm not you know not everything is is spelled out um in black and white as it were some of the people in the room are really into the 
really into the reading and some of them are kind of yanking uh mm-hmm. charles durning's chain so uh but that's that's one spot where i found where where i thought where i realized oh there's there is a race component in this movie it's sure. not not as explored as as um uh as as a lot of other things but it's in there and they do give uh delma the the black uh wide receiver who is presented kind of as a you know, a counter to the Nick Nolte character. The Nick Nolte character is willing to take needles and drugs and, you know, be shot up in order to play. And Delma, who is more talented than the Nick Nolte character and a little bit and a younger, younger and is wanted by the coach to be on the field as much as possible, doesn't take needles, takes care of his body and does not abuse himself the way a lot of the Southern, you know, wild boys do in the movie. Um, so they have that little angle too. The scene you just mentioned has the great John Matuzak, the twos, who anybody will remember if you're a child of the 70s and 80s, who's one of those guys from the NFL, a wild man from the NFL who crossed over a little bit into movies and TV, playing basically himself, um, who died way too young of the lifestyle, basically. Uh, but he stands up and and does a very funny bit with the Charles Durning character where he stands up and asks the coach, can he have a copy? Cause that's just the most beautiful poem I ever heard coach. And then a few of the other guys start standing up and asking for it too. Durning is hilarious in this movie. I was how I, Charles Durning doesn't have so much to do, but this guy knows how to hold the camera, just swigging a bottle of Maalox and looking sour. He knows that's going to end up in the movie. <laughs> no dialogue, right? Oh my God. He's brilliant. He cracks me up. But yeah, the, the uh, the origin of the movie, I guess I didn't realize that it was kind of like, you know, we have to remember this is when Nick Nolte was was a star, I guess. And this was really a Nolte uh, production. And he's the one who who uh, says he hand selected Ted Kotcheff after seeing the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz and Ted Kotcheff, who kind of hilariously and to his credit uh, and also to his detriment, turned down many things that probably would have made him an extremely wealthy man. For example, he turned down the sequel to Rambo. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, not to go too deep into that back into Ted Kotcheff again, but it's really it's really interesting when you go and, and realize that he made First Blood. Then the next movie he made after that was Uncommon Valor. And then... The and then the next sort of Vietnam movie after that was the sequel to First Blood, mm-hmm. which uh, Rambo, which is pretty much the same story as Rambo. You know, it's about uh, it's about uh, you know vets going back to save mm-hmm. uh, their boys missing in action. But you mean the same as Uncommon Valor? Yeah, I'm sorry. So he went yes. back. So he instead of making uh, he had made Uncommon Valor before right. Rambo right. was made, and then he turned down Rambo. Well, you know, he said he turned on Rambo because when he read the script that they had, it just it seemed to him completely contrary to everything they'd established about the character in the first movie, you know, who is who is not a killing machine in the first movie. He's he's you know, he's he's only as he says, they drew first blood. Like if you draw first blood on John Rambo, he's going to hunt you down and kill you. But he doesn't even do that in the movie, uh, aside from demolishing many innocent townspeople's hard-won businesses, which is sort of a strange issue that John Rambo gets away with scot-free in the movie, but I guess he does end up in prison. I guess he comes out of prison in the second movie. I'm not sure, but you know, had he well, not turned Richard that Brennan down, springs him, but anyway, oh, he does. 
yeah. had he not turned that down, I mean, I think that movie was the one that really made like $300 million and he probably would have been fantastically wealthy. Uh, think about turning that down because that was probably known at that time that it was going to turn into something. It was going to turn into that type of Stallone franchise, like a Rocky that could probably, that is still going on. I think they made one recently that I, someone just told me the other day it was actually good. And they said, no, no, I think they go back to kind of the, the, what made John Rambo special in first blood in the, in the most recent one that he might've done, but I haven't seen that. So, so yeah, Nolte, you know, he, he almost, he tried to get out of making North Dallas 40, uh, Ted Kotcheff did because he told Nolte, like, I don't know anything about football. Like, why, why do you want me to direct this movie? And that's like what Nolte wanted to hear because he told him that the movie was more about fighting corrupt institutions than it was a sports film. And indeed there isn't like the plot per se. And I wonder if this is true of like a lot of football movies where you can't resist, I guess, like having some game that the team has to win or lose every football movie I can think of. It's either like they win. Yay. We feel good. Or you get like the Friday night lights thing where it's like we lost, but we still won, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure it's the same with, you know, in every situation where you're going to do a sports movie, you're going to have to make a decision about whether the story you're telling is about a victory that makes mm -hmm. the audience feel good. Or if you're going to talk either about uh, or talk about a loss in which the protagonist. A, char learned. a character building loss. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, Rocky, you know, the first Rocky yeah. movie, which I think ends with uh, like, I didn't win the fight, but I what I won the decision or something like that at the end where it's not really, it's not totally clear what the victory is. Mm -hmm. so I think it's supposed to be just like a personal victory. If I remember. Well, yeah. He walks off with Adrian. He got Adrian. He, he yeah. wins. Yeah. Yeah. I but, think, um, yeah, I mean, I th I, I'm not sure if this is where you're, where you're going, uh, but with the, uh, with the, the football, itself in North Dallas 40. Yeah, it's a story about football players and the team and we're and we can talk more about um uh about the the drama that exists between these different uh entities of the football of the of the, mm -hmm. the football universe in the film. But when it comes to football itself, um if you're going to watch if you've never seen this movie and you're watching it cuz you want to see a lot of uh, football depicted you're, <laughs> you're going to find disappointed. yourself disappointed now i timed it jason um if you take out the practice scenes because there's yeah. a few of those mm -hmm. um the the scene in which there's an actual live football game is nine minutes wow okay it's amazing the scene of the pre-game in the locker room and mm -hmm. that epic locker room mm. sequence is 12 minutes <laughs> because that's what that's what the book, you know, the book is about the inside life of a football team. And I, it's, it's stunning to think, and again, this is a product of like the new Hollywood time that this was made when, you know, you could, you could, you, you could go in as Nick Nolte and be like, yeah, I want to make a film that's about the corrupt institution of, of football. And through that, I want to tell a story that's not being told about American life. And they're like, yes, here's, $18 million, go make that movie. Uh, you know, it's incredible really. And it's, I was watching it again and I was kind of watching with that eye of kind of like, okay, what is this scene here for? For example, that there's a scene between Mac Davis and Nick Nolte in the steam room. Um, and it's kind of where 
this amazing moment happens that I kind of just glossed over in all my previous viewings, because I think in previous viewings, I was watching it for the comedy. And so the sort of serious moments, I just didn't really pay close attention to. Whereas this time, uh, I was really focused on kind of every scene and what the intention is of the scene. And it's a brilliant scene where Mac Davis, who, who amazingly, his first ever film performance is in this movie. And he's, he's pretty fucking good. He's phenomenal. Like, it just shows you that there are certain people who just have a thing. And as an untrained actor, he steps into this movie and plays a really complicated character who is not all of a good guy and not a great friend to his friend, Nick Nolte, in the film. Uh, was, he's complicit. Yeah, I was thinking about Mac Davis making a choice to do that. And for people who don't know who Mac Davis is or was, I mean, the guy was a big star in the 1970s as um, this as a songwriter who wrote all these classic Elvis Presley songs. He was a very successful country singer uh, in his, you know, of his own performance. He had a variety show on TV for two or three years. Um, uh, he was a big deal uh, in in pop culture in the seventies. And then for him to, to take on his first acting role in which he plays um, somebody who is of real, you know, questionable, uh, um, you know, moral decision-making. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty brave and he really it pulls is. it off too. I he mean, does. I don't looking back at, at Mac Davis's sort of IMDB page there's, he made some other movies in the eighties, but uh, he never, he never turned in a performance like he did in this movie. No, well, the other one, say, the other ones, he's just, he's in there to go, and like, you know, slap a cowboy hat on his, on his denims. Right. I mean, maybe he was good in other movies, but he wasn't, yeah. in, he wasn't in any other good movies. And, and in this scene that I'm talking about, which is incredible, you know, he says, he says a version of that thing, which is like the only time he really felt alive on the football field was when he was lying on the turf injured and the worse the pain got, the better he felt. And it's the scene that kind of shows the, the screwed up mentality, I think, that either you have to have in order to participate in this blood sport in the first place, or that kind of what happens to the mind of these guys as they are exposed to a world that by that point in the film, we know is they're, they're literally kids in a candy store and the candy is women, free cowboy boots, um, money, fame, you know, and very pointedly, a complete disintegration of the rules that exist for polite society. You know, these guys are shown to just take what they want when they want it. And they're encouraged to do that. Um, and they are set against each other for the amusement and the end goal of the team ownership and the coaches. You know, when they instigate that fight, the training camp fight, which is such a true aspect of football teams for anyone who, who watches things like Hard Knocks on HBO, you know, there is always one of those and the coaches always let it go. And it's still viewed despite all of the progress that the NFL has made in terms of brain injuries and things like that, it's still viewed by many organizations and coaches as a good thing, as a, as a sign, just like the owner of the team says, they got their blood up now and they, they call the end of the practice and they're off to Chicago to, to, to do their best in the most important game. And so the gladiator sport aspect of it, I think is so well illustrated in the movie, but 
just go back to like, it's such a character study more than it is a plot driven movie. Like nothing really happens except yes, Nick Nolte's character goes through this arc of realizing his foundation as a human being is increasingly at odds with the way he makes his living. And as he gets exposed to an outsider um, in the case of Dale Haddon, who plays uh, a woman that he meets at a debauched party. Uh, it's through that that he sort of realizes that he can't tow the line the way Mac Davis's character has learned to tow the line uh, because these people that are in charge of him are idiots, you know, and have do not have his or anyone's best interests at heart. And he comes to realize how he, you know, he was used in order to get Delma to take the shot to go out on the field. Uh, and he wasn't given an opportunity to perform the way he thought he was being given. So there's just so much interesting stuff. So I, I was thinking a lot about MASH when I watched it. Like, it's the MASH of football movies. Right. <clears throat> um, this may be a little uh, dive into some, uh, some plot minutia, but you were just talking about Dale Haddon as the uh, mm -hmm. Nick Nolte's girlfriend, Charlotte, in the movie. Um, to me, she's kind of a weak link there. Um, I don't think she's poorly played by that actress, but I feel like, um, first of all, I don't know what the hell she's doing at that party. <laughs> well, they try to handle that where he says, why were you at that party? And she, you know, she's divorced and she's trying to get back out there, I guess. And he asks her when he shows up at her house afterwards, what she was doing there. And she just says, well, I thought it would be fun. It's a bit of a red herring. Yes. Now in the book, you know, which is a novelized version of Peter, Peter Gent's career as a Dallas cowboy. There's a whole crazy thing with that character where like at the end of the book, he, he, you know, has the thing that happens with the team and he quits and he realizes that's kind of what they wanted him to do all along. He returns home to start his new life with her and he finds that she's been carrying on an affair with another character that's not in the movie, but is in the book and that they've both been murdered right, in the home. That's how it is. And it's like some kind of murder mystery thing. So <laughs> I don't think they really knew what to do with her. I think you just said it so well. I was thinking about this the other day. She's very well performed, but doesn't have much to do except to be the thing that pulls him out of the cesspool of the NFL. I actually thought right. the actress, Dale Haddon, who was really one of the biggest female models in the world at the time. I thought she actually did a really good job. I actually thought she was quite skilled in the performance of the character, but I agree with you that there's not a lot for her to do. Right. I guess I would just ask in your opinion, do you feel like the romance in this movie between Nick Nolte's character and Dale Haddon, Haddon's character, is it, is it, um, is it, is it underplayed? Does it feel extra? Does it feel just right? I'm just, I'm just curious about, I mean, you would anticipate that in this, that if you're going to put a love story into the middle of a sports movie that, you know, the, the, the love interest is going to be, I don't know, more supporting of the guy or something, you know, like she's just going to be more involved uh, with the, with the protagonist athlete character. And she's really, really on the outside of this world, which mm -hmm. on the one hand is, seems like a good writing choice, but on the mm -hmm. other hand, there 
she's not she's just never knowable in this movie and i feel like i need i need that character to i need something more from that character and then i think well i guess you know in addition to the fact that she's sort of his you know she's his respite from this corrupt world of mm -hmm. of uh of football um that I think that there's also like we like it's almost like there there needs to be some balance of all the homoeroticism. Um, <laughs> and the, the avenue for doing that is to sort of like you know every fifteen minutes or so remind us that uh, that that these guys are really into are really into women. I don't know. You know, I think that she there are scene the scene where he takes her to his future ranch location, and they have dinner. And they have a fight when the fight is over her kind of questioning, you know, why do you do this to yourself? It's ridiculous. You don't even really like it. Like, and he kind of gets uncharacteristically for the character to that point, he gets defensive and kind of closed off. And he, he's like, I don't like, I got to keep my mind focused on the game, you know, and he sort of resorts to some of the cliches, <laughs> but I think that her character is there to, uh, to show the conflicted nature of the Nick Nolte character himself. Like he is genuine in, in, in a disingenuous environment and only through his connection with her can that genuineness find expression. He's trying to be genuine with the Mac Davis character. He's trying to be genuous with, uh, with the coach BA. He's trying to be genuine with the owner of the team, but they can't be genuine with him because they view him in various guises. So yeah, I don't, I, I guess, again, this is like one of the problems of watching too many movies is I'm watching and I'm thinking she's doing a really good job in a, in a movie where you're already in a thankless position as one of the female characters. I actually thought it was an interesting counterpoint to the other kind of romantic partner of Nick Nolte in the movie who's, who unlike the Dale Haddon character is a little bit more scheming. She's actually going to marry the one of the worst and most odious people in the whole film, played unsurprisingly, if you're looking for odious characters, by everyone's favorite Dabney Coleman. She's going to marry Dabney Coleman, not because she loves or even likes Dabney Coleman's character, because presented to us as cruel and full of himself and an idiot. He's kind of the idiot brother to the uh, to the sort of Jerry Jones owner that we're that we're looking at even though this is pre-Jerry Jones era Dallas Cowboys, but she's making a calculation. But their connection, bizarrely, is more real in a way than his connection with the Dale Haddon character. Because that scene, like they're being very honest with each other in that scene, that sequence of scenes. Until, like they're honest with each other until he says, hey, he holds up her high school yearbook, right? And she's cut out all the pictures of herself. And he says, where's all the pictures you cut out of here? And she says, oh, that, that she doesn't exist anymore. And he says, well, in that case, she looks just like you. And he holds up a page with the picture cut out. This is an amazing line. And at that point, she kind of shuts down and everything gets kind of fake and they lose a connection. Which you think is really interesting, the way they played that scene, because they're kind of in it together and they're doing something they shouldn't be doing because she's involved with his boss, basically as an owner of the football team. But she's basically saying like, look, I'm going to marry him. And once I'm in the family, you get to keep your job. And I get, I already told the Dabney Coleman character, I'm keeping my apartment and he agreed. So you can come over anytime you want. 
So I guess in that way, yes, the female characters are a bit underwritten and, you know, exist to reflect what they're supposed to reflect from the male characters in typical Hollywood fashion. But I think there's enough in on both of those that I really was into that I kind of thought was interesting. And just like a lot of Ted Kotcheff things was played very, um, was played for like an, like a very intelligent, messy middle, as opposed to, as you said before, the black and white, you know? Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that stuff, I wonder, I don't, this is just a complete speculation. I'd have to look her name up. Maybe you can do it for me. Um, there's a third writer on the movie, which is credited to Peter Gent, who wrote the book. I think Kotcheff is credited as a writer. I think Frank Yablens is credited as a writer. He's the producer of the film. And then there's a really fascinating Hollywood character who I want to who I want to delve into more on another episode because I just read kind of the Wikipedia thing and I've come across her a couple of times before. There's a fascinating story there. Yeah, I'm getting the name Nancy Dowd. Yeah, it's Nancy Dowd. And Nancy Dowd wrote Slapshot, which oh. is a brilliant and very similar movie to North Dallas 40. Um, in its portrayal of a sports league. In that case, we're talking about sort of a low-rent sports league to begin with, but definitely one of the greatest sports films ever made. One of the greatest films ever made. It's just an amazing film. She wrote that movie because her brother was a low-level hockey player. But Nancy is fascinating because if you look at her Wikipedia page, <laughs> on a lot of her film credits, she was credited under a male name because otherwise she probably couldn't get the work. And then in a lot of movies that she had a big hand in, she just never bothered to take a credit at all. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I'm looking at her uncredited yeah. uh, film, her uncredited screenplays. Ready? Coming Home, Ordinary People, Cloak and Dagger, White Knights, three Slapshot movies. Yeah. Uncredited. I mean, there's some good stuff in there. There's a few lines in this movie that to me felt like they came from a female sensibility. And I would wonder in a greater exploration of the, the making of the film, uh, could, we, could we learn that those indeed came from the pen of Nancy Dowd? Because there's a, there's a scene that we were just talking about with the other woman who's gonna marry the Dabney Coleman character. And it's an incredible line at the end of their kind of sex scene in the morning. And she turns to him and says, do you love me? And he says, sort of. And, <laughs> and she kind of waits a beat. She waits a perfect beat, by the way. Right. Like as an acting choice, she, he doesn't say sort of, and then she doesn't immediately say, well, that's a funny thing to say. She waits in a perfect beat of kind of the way you would be sort of wounded when somebody says something other than the answer you're expecting. And then she says, that's a strange answer to give. And Nick Nolte says, quote, this is the line. It's the only kind of answer I know how to give when somebody I really like needs to know the truth. Mm -hmm. That's a fucking great line and such a great scene. They're honest with each other in that scene. That's what I think what I was getting at before. Uh, but, yeah, it's great because of the delineation between do you love somebody and do you like somebody mm -hmm. uh, it, it shows some real, uh, you know, uh, emotional um, intelligence on behalf of Nick Nolte's character. Yeah. And he has to get free of that relationship 
as much as they do like each other, because that relationship is ultimately as hollow as all of the other relationships within the football team. I guess that's yeah, what that's there for. If anybody wants to go on a real deep Nancy Nancy Dowd uh, uh, dive, um, you can also find her credited uh, with screenwriting credits as Rob Morton and Ernest Morton. And by the way, these are credits from the 1980s, not the 1880s. You know, where a woman in in that decade yes. for some reason felt that her uh, 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 she needed to um, uh, be a man in order to make more money. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm fascinated. I mean, to, you know, if you think about Hollywood, you think about like, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll just do it for no credit is, is it, it, there's, it's like a sign that something interesting exists here. It could be a complete sort of lack of careerism. It could be uh, that this was forced upon her. There's just more to know there. I want to get into that because I think it's cool. So I'm going to definitely look up, look that up. Mm -hmm. um, so the what else is brilliant about this movie um so so many things uh we talked about mac davis and nolte are great together you know nolte uh nolte is good you know I, I don't know why i forget that like he's a good actor um he is in full command of himself physically and intellectually even though he's not he's often playing people who have a hard time expressing themselves but you know, he's damn good, man. He's been good for a long, long time. And I, I can forget that sometimes because of the persona and the troubled times and the mug shots and all that stuff. But in this era, you know, it's really hard to think of anyone else playing his part. I, I, I mean, you don't have to convince me. The, the physical stuff is, uh, is what's amazing because it's really hard to know when you're watching this character, you know, am I watching somebody, you know, am I watching somebody who's actually as, as broken as he's coming off or is all this stuff, you know, with the limp and the, uh, the groaning and the, uh, and the stretching is all that just acting in direction. I mean, it really, I mean, it's a whole character. Um, uh, that's, it, it's, it's a very understated, well, I'm not sure if understate is quite, is quite the right, right word as much as it's, it's, he's doing a, he's doing, um, you know, he has, there's a method to what he's, what he's doing and it's, and it's very convincing. He's not always um, likable or easy to watch, but it's a great performance. The other one that, I, the other one that I just got to run by you is, is G.D. Spradlin as, as the totally Tom Landry-esque uh, coach. I mean, he is amazing um, in that role. Um, I thought, is there any way that G.D. Spradlin didn't get a supporting actor nomination for this movie? Totally agree uh, with you. Um, uh, th th there's just there. He he is given some really rich material, um, you know, sometimes from you know, sometimes from close up, sometimes from a, from a very high tower. Yes. Yes. There's that scene. This is this. This isn't just him. This is all like just a perfectly directed scene that uh, that uh, you have to watch these things pretty closely. And it's just sort of like catch where the acting melds with the direction. 
Mm-hmm. There's a scene where G- they're in that stupid uh, classroom situation. Yeah. You know, they've just gotten done telling Nick Nolte that he needs to uh, be more mature. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, they're using that word, you know, stop acting like a child. He quotes something from the Bible. I put aside about, childish things. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and not not more than a couple scenes later, there are all, all of these these grown men are shoved into a classroom, yes. like uh, tiny yeah, desks. Yeah, tiny <laughs> desks, like like they're all in the eighth grade, uh, and being yes. you know having erasers thrown at them, <laughs> um, basically being treated like children. Yes. But there's a scene where GD Spradlin he's doing something uh, where he's uh, sort of reciting their their uh, statistics. Their you know right. the uh, yes uh, brilliant their analytics that he's getting off this off a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's walking, the, the camera tracks him uh, as he's walking around the classroom. And when he gets to the middle of the room, he recites something about uh, 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 past completion. And the yep. camera stops. And him and Mac, and Mac Davis, who's in the middle of the room, the camera stops. And then the two actors look at each other because um, that's the moment mm-hmm. when if you're if you if you pay mm-hmm. attention to the game of football you think it's all just gobbledygook and then now it's like oh that statistic is about mac davis's character right look at each other and then the camera starts uh you know mm-hmm. the uh, the track starts yeah starts moving again it's just that that there's just like that one beat where there it's it's perfectly timed use of what what film does you know the the you know film as a medium and the way it tells its story is different from uh, different from theater and and mm-hmm. and that's just it's just an excellent use of the camera use the camera's use of storytelling and uh I, i'm a little bit off track because i really you know I, I wanted to just mention that uh, that great scene but it's gd spradlin in the middle of it and he's he's very good and um uh, i know that we talked about him actually the last time i was on the show we were doing a uh we were talking about uh, Columbo and he's mm-hmm. in that that same Columbo that we <laughs> talked about last summer. That's right. You know, I have chills when you're talking about that scene and how incredibly well-directed and edited it is. And I had the exact same thought about G.D. Spradlin. I thought, here's this, that guy, character actor, who turns in a variation of the performance you can see him do in, you know, Godfather 2, right? Um in every movie that he's ever in, he's a character actor. He's there to be that guy. But this movie gives him weird and interesting layers because he's an evil, vindictive fuck. But there are moments where humanity peeks through. There are moments because of his skill as an actor and what's in the script where you're allowed to see that he's that he and Nick Nolte actually have a bond that the Nick Nolte character doesn't have with the owner and that the, that the BA character doesn't have with the owner. Um, and, and that, that's, I think what you're talking about when there's, when there's a different thing going on because of the skill of the director and the actor and the quality of the script that allows his character to really do some interesting things. And, you know, interestingly, the Cowboys were advanced at their time. They were the first NFL franchise to use computers and rely on statistical models. And there's that great scene in the beginning of the movie where, uh, it's just a great take on the control device of having someone come into you an office for a meeting and you sit behind the desk and you do something else first before you even look at them or engage them in conversation. And GD Spradlin does that by just hitting 
the same button over and over on his computer. And you, you don't know at that point, you haven't been introduced to the concept that there are statistical things being thrown at these guys and, and it's being thrown at them because they're falling short of some expectation. And he finally gets to a long thing and he goes, there it is right there. And that's when he says the thing, you know, it's your lack of maturity as if you could get that from data on a computer spreadsheet. It's so good. And then there's like, Nick Nolte looks up above and they're in Dabney Coleman's office at the time. And he looks up and there's all the photos of the woman that we don't yet know Nick Nolte is about to go meet and have an affair with. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I thought GD Spradlin was great. I thought the good old boys in the movie were also great and sort of so perfectly cast and scary. Cause that type of Texan scares me. The owner, you know, uh, the Joe Bob character, um, you've probably seen any given Sunday, the stone Oliver stone NFL movie. I haven't seen it. Okay. It, you know, th- it owes so much to this movie. The party scenes in any given Sunday are just kind of direct lifts from this movie. Really. Um, it just, just put into a modern context. Uh, but you know, the, the fear that a character like Joe Bob represents the brute strength, the inability to control that person, uh, is deployed very successfully. And the, the way in which the Matuzak character and he kind of, tr- he keeps Joe Bob at least a little bit in his cage, you know, until it's time to unleash the beast. And, and, and that stuff is done really, really well because it's sort of, sh- you know, this is what it requires. You have to have those guys. And that's sort of the internal conundrum of the NFL and specifically the NFL when you mentioned when you stopped watching was because at that time, the hypocrisy of the NFL and the uh, the trouble that kept fall, befalling the NFL and players getting into trouble was a direct correlation to the type of brutality and violence that we require of the players within the lines of the field and then hold them to, you know, a societal standard of behavior off the field. And, you know, I think the NFL likes to pretend that they can have that both ways, right? Um, And it likes to pretend that it's not taking a class disadvantaged population and using that class disadvantage for the entertainment of millions of people and the creation of billions of dollars in revenue, right? Uh, So that that NFL is, the, the modern NFL is different than the NFL were shown in North Dallas 40, uh, because I think the class and the racial divide would become so much starker later on and to the point that we're at right now where most teams are predominantly made up of black athletes. And yet we don't have, you know, we don't have a tremendous amount of black head coaches. We don't have a tremendous amount of black general managers. And uh, I don't think we have any, you know, black team owners, probably, you know, partial owners, but we don't, we're, we, that, that part, the power part, you know, it, it still belongs to the chosen few, you know, and, and they wield yeah. their power as they do in this movie today, just like they did then in the seventies. Right. Well, I would ask you about, I haven't seen any given Sunday. Uh, so I don't know how much it is, uh, how much it's indebted to um, North Dallas 40, but I would ask you, um, given the job of being a producer or a director, if you could remake this movie, 
North Dallas 40, if it could be remade, because one of the interesting things is that the the story all works for today. You know, the 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 power dynamics, all of that um, is translatable and 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 seems relevant. The sexual politics seem relevant, the violence and the injury, all of that stuff. Uh, would certainly work if you were trying to remake the movie today. The one thing which might not work is economics, because in this movie, 1979, these players, we don't know how much money they really make. Um, and we, I mean, there's some indication that they are well paid, but they don't make anything like what mm -hmm. players make today. And to have these athletes uh, being subjected to this kind of manipulation, um, both in terms of their, uh, what they're, they're expected to do on the field, what they're expected to put up with in regard to injury, what they're, what uh, we didn't, haven't even gotten to the whole, uh, conspiracy to, uh, get <laughs> Nick Nolte kicked off the <laughs> right. team. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is, I guess in 1979 we didn't have we didn't we didn't have Scott Boris's in uh, in football and all of these these players are basically on their own um, trying to fight the you know fight the 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 corporate system and if you made this movie today you'd have the complication of the fact that that um, uh, that the players are making a lot more money now and that has to do with representation. Mm -hmm. uh, has a lot to do with representation and and so uh you, it, it would have to i mean all of the 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 economic dynamics mm -hmm. would have to be done differently uh if you were make if you were if you were remaking this movie today and that what's going on in 1979 might to somebody now look more like like today maybe it was maybe it's more like minor league hockey mm -hmm. or something like mm -hmm. that as far as the uh the hierarchy of the player versus the team um could you remake sure. this movie in in 2021 or do you have to just make a different movie i mean this is one of those movies that to me is such a specific moment in time it's, it's akin to ball four you know the great jim bouton book it's the first look inside the professional sport uh, in this way that the way, the same way that book was, you know, you have to remember back in the, the mid seventies or late seventies, we didn't, we didn't know all the things that we knew. And there were much, there was much more complicity with writers and the coverage of sports to cover up bad and illicit behavior. And so to get a look inside what's really going on in the locker room and what's really going on off the field, the way this movie did today, it wouldn't, you'd have to be, make it so much more shocking in the way that Oliver Stone did on any given Sunday, you know, where the debauchery is just amped up to, you know, to porn level, basically, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that the look inside is the part that was so unique at the time. And I was shocked when I was reading how the NFL reacted to this movie. Um, a lot of people who were not even on screen uh, I think Fred Bolitnikoff was a consultant to the movie and consulted with Nick Nolte and helped him kind of get the moves right for the football scenes. And, and they said like, Fred Bolitnikoff was, was, was cut from the Raiders after his involvement in the movie. And the guy that plays Delma, 
uh, also lost his job on an on an NFL team after appearing in the movie. And people were actually were blackballed from the NFL for participating in this, which is is a constant. The NFL still tries to control the narrative to such an insane degree. Um, you know, I just watched a documentary, um, uh, Four Games in Fall, which is about the Deflate Gate scandal uh, that befell my beloved Tom Brady and the Patriots, um, which stepping outside of my fandom, you know, struck me then and certainly continues to strike me after watching this documentary as just another piece of screwed up NFL bullshit that really tried to grind an ax where there was really no crime committed. I mean, nothing occurred here other than physics. And this documentary really lays that out in such great detail and really lays out the NFL's attempted legal cover-up more so than how they got the initial thing wrong. And so when you talk about the economics, I think that is true that the NFL obviously is worth so many more billions of dollars. The money is so much greater. The power of the players is greater. But you know, let's remember, alone amongst the major sports, the players in the NFL have the least power compared to baseball or basketball, where if you sign a contract, it's guaranteed. You're getting your money, whatever happens. I mean, yes, there are ways they can cut you in various sports or they can trade you. They can cause your career to suffer because you're not on a winning team, but you're getting your money. Uh, that's not the case in the NFL. You know, the NFL is owned and controlled by the owners and partially because of the truism that it would be very difficult in such a violent sport to have a guaranteed contract when the average career expectancy is three seasons. And that's part of the argument to not have guaranteed contracts that way. Of course, there is guaranteed money in contracts and the way they structure them does provide some far greater measure of security for certainly the star players, but it is an ecosystem like any other. The average player plays three years. It does not make millions of dollars. And I think, you know, based on some numbers I heard a few years ago, I think 70% of NFL players are broke within three years of leaving the league. So the league does not do a great job either taking care of its former players. Uh, it doesn't do a great job of setting its current players up for life after the lights go off. And, and I think that's also part of the subtext of this, this movie is, um, is a little bit, it kind of leaves us right at what would maybe be another interesting movie, which is kind of like, well, what happens to the Nick Nolte character after it's over? because we don't really get to follow that. Um, and I think we know now that's often as interesting as, as the life inside. You know, there's this great kind of moment where at the very first party scene, uh, the Mac Davis character says, let's go get in a pile, meaning in basically, you know, an orgy situation. And Nick Nolte's character says, ah, it's the same old pile. And, and the Mac Davis character says, well, I'm going to go get knee deep in it, partner. And, you know, you're shown in the first five minutes of the movie that the first scene is Nick Nolte lying on his pillow with his nose bleeding. And as you said, this incredible sequence of the physical toll that it's taken on his body. Then they're at this party where the reward is you can have whatever you want here. You can have any of these women, you can have these drugs, you can have these free cowboy boots and these free television sets from the, sycophantic hanger on that's throwing the party, right? And the Nolte character knows enough that it's 
hollow and unrewarding while all of his other teammates are, as Mac Davis says, getting knee deep in it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's just part of the, the era too, I think that kind of like, but it's, it's, it's pretty remarkably forward looking for a movie that ostensibly I, I would imagine you're probably selling on the basis of like, Oh, it's going to be great. You know, it's going to be debauchery. And like I said, when, when my wife walked in and saw that it looks like you're watching Porky's or something, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's not overtly obvious that you're actually watching something more akin with other new Hollywood movies about establishment conflict of the sort that's going on in the era. Right. You think that because it's a sports movie and the first 20 minutes is about, you know, is about these these wild parties with um, uh, these idiot football players throwing mm-hmm. the, you know, throwing the free TV, TV yeah. into the pool. <laughs> um, you have to stick with it long enough to figure out that this is a critique. Yes. Is, you that's, know, yeah, that's the genius of it. It doesn't I mean, is, you know, is there toxic max- masculinity in this movie? Obviously, are women mm-hmm. treated as equals? Never. But no. um, there are layers going on here. Sure. And you and and you have when you take a step back from this movie and uh, you, you realize that 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 the first 20 minutes of the movie are a demonstration for for you, the audience. Um, to see what the players do in their mm-hmm. in their off field life, and then what what follows upon that is the way that those those players are exploited and made prostitutes yes. in a variety of ways uh, by the the team and the corporation that controls them. They so, kind of make you complicit as a viewer first because you're kind of like this is funny, and then you know when you watch it again, you're just like this is horrible. So many mm-hmm. terrible things are going on. I wanted to get back. You said before the homoerotic subtext. Uh, I don't even know if it's a subtext when it comes to the Monsignor and his little acolyte priest who is gazing adoringly at what's clearly supposed to be a gay priest character. Yeah. Who enjoys being around the naked men in the locker room, I guess. And then there's, did you take that scene? Uh, so in the party scene in the beginning, there's the fight over the woman that occurs between the character who's punching his fist into the cabinet because the girl that's dancing with his teammate likes football injuries. And so he thinks if he's bleeding, he'll go to her and she'll drop his friend and she'll go with him instead. And so he does that, she does, they get into a fist fight and they're rolling around on the ground. And then they're just, you know, they're two good old boys. They're just having fun. They have a sort of mock comic kiss and then they get up and then they both start dancing with the girl. Later on in the movie, before the big game, the one guy is terrified that he's going to fumble. Don't fumble the football. Don't fumble the football. And the other guy who has this kind of feathered, almost Farrah Fawcett-like 70s hair (laughs) is kind of very tenderly kind of talking him down and is kind of caressing him. What did you read into that scene? Uh, Well, I thought this is a 1979 uh, version of a gay couple that is being sort of secretly passed off in this movie. Um, I'd love somebody to ask uh, Ted Kotchoff that question. Um, you know, if that's something that he, if that's something that he, that he was deliberately doing or not. I mean, it seems like, uh, like I said, I think you can give a pretty pro-feminist mo- uh, uh, reading of this movie, despite mm-hmm. its, uh, you know, appearance of being um, grossly sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I wonder if that was some other again if it was a if it was a, a conscious effort to try and say hey what if a couple of the players on the team have a uh, you know have a gay relationship going on without really you know I mean it's a different movie yeah I don't know I mean the scene struck me I, I didn't think that at all watching the first scene where they're sort of fighting over the woman but then when I watched the sec the the locker room scene where he's kind of comforting him. I was like, what is, what is going on in this scene? Like, are we meant to, are we meant to think the things that I'm thinking when I'm watching how they're playing this? Yeah. I think we are, but then like, to your point, there's also the other storyline of the good Christian quarterback who through a combination of Mac Davis's character, getting him really drunk ends up, being sodomized in a sexual free-for-all that the Mac Davis character and he get into after attending another sycophantic supporter event. And then they party afterwards with the supporter and his wife. And then there, there is mention of, uh, of dildos being brought out and lube. And there's jokes that continue to be made throughout the movie at that character's expense that he's that he went so far to the wild side that, you know, he was obviously penetrated in some way. There's a kind of a recurring joke made of that. So on the one hand, you kind of have the cruel homophobic culture of the locker room. And then you have that really weird scene where it's kind of played tenderly, like, hey, it's okay. No, you're, you're doing good. You know, so thanks baby. Like the way they're talking to each other, right? It's like, uh -huh. it's a couple. I yeah. think we're meant to think that. I mean, I guess at the time, you know, I mean, being gay in a professional sport is still so, so verboten and controversial. We haven't really come that far from 1978 in that regard. I'd have to read Gant's book to see if he's kind of talking about that in the book in greater, you know, in greater detail than we got in the movie. Um, yeah. Well, but, again, but it, I, I would suggest to you that, that it goes back to what we we're talking about this director, Ted Kotcheff, who, uh, in this movie, which is supposed to be a, you know, a football movie, he's playing chess with the audience. You know, mm -hmm. he's put, there's so many things that are getting inserted in there. Inserted. <laughs> I didn't. This, <laughs> bad choice I see what you did a, there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are things that he, that, there are things that he is, uh, that, that he's suggesting you think about in this movie, which you don't expect. If you go and again, if you go and watch this uh, uh, fun with Dick and Jane, with uh, Jane Fonda and George Siegel, mm -hmm. you think you're supposed to be getting just a screwball comedy. Mm. Um, there's a lot going on there that is, uh, that again, is uh, a, a critique of American culture. And it plays out in very surprising ways. And the movie happens to be genuinely funny from beginning mm -hmm. to end. I've got to see that one. I haven't seen that. I also, I went down a little George, this George Siegel moment that existed in American films in the seventies is so funny to me, you know, where George Siegel is in every movie for like 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and kind of what he must have represented to the audience at the time as a kind of proto post sixties, you know, funny guy who's kind of got substance, but is still navigating like how the hell he's going to live in a world that's changed away from him. He's always kind of yeah. playing that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to see uh, that. 
What's the Robert Altman movie where Siegel and Elliot Gould are like the they're the the sort of layabout gamblers? Do you remember that movie? They go they go to the track and they go to the poker game. Do you no, know I don't know about? that one. I'm not it's sure. Is still, that the is that the uh, the Philip Marlowe one? California. Oh, California. Yeah, I've never seen that. I've never seen I, that. As as far as George Siegel movies go, uh, yeah, um, that's that one. Uh, I recommend. Is that the, the Er George Siegel? I think so. Although, honestly, <laughs> uh, some of these other ones we're talking about are pretty good, too. Why do I think of George Siegel playing the banjo on The Tonight Show when I think of him? Like, was he known for that or something? Yeah, I think he was also, uh, you know, uh, he was a, a great uh, guest, right? A like, great, he's a great yeah, talk show guy. That's how I sort of always thought of him, because I think growing up and not, you know, being too young to see these types of movies. I think the only re the only thing I knew about George Siegel for many, many years until kind of getting into watching movies later in my life was that he was really funny with Johnny Carson and would often bring his banjo. I don't even know if that's true. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember that too. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. I just watched a movie with George Siegel where he's like a heroin addict. Uh, that's kind of a pretty interesting and weird uh, 70s film which uses that exact George Siegel persona that you're talking about. Do you know what it's called? Oh, I can't remember. I just watched it last week. Let's look it up. George Siegel must still be alive, right? Uh, yeah. He's 86 years old. Uh -huh. Good for him. And I guarantee you he's still working. Now, while you're looking that up, I also want to point out, not, I'm very resistant to this, but... There's another Ted Kotcheff movie with George Siegel called Who's Killing the Great Chess of Europe? Yeah, I've read about that one. I, I, that doesn't seem quite well-reviewed. Yeah, I, like I said, uh, I, would, I would like to watch it and find out that it's much better than it sounds. <laughs> I don't think you're going to find that, unfortunately. Okay. Um, it was made... Right, um, it was made... Uh, the year before uh, uh, North Dallas 40. Um, and it was based on the, no who's, who, who is killing the great chefs of Europe was based on a novel titled, Someone is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. <laughs> so the movie but I'm thinking about uh, is called Born to Win. And George Siegel plays a smart mouth junkie and loser who spends his day looking for just one more fix. Oops. And it co-stars Paul Apprentice, Karen Black, uh, and it was directed by Ivan Passer, which is, I think, uh, how I got into it because Ivan Passer uh, is a Czech director who made that great film with, um, oh my God, did I used to be able to remember everything or was I always this way? You would know better than me. Um, Jeff Bridges, it's a great neo-noir, Cutter's Way, based on the uh, book Cutter and Bone. Okay. Uh, that's the film that I watched recently and was just sort of so blown away by the atmospherics and the talk about fascinating female characters. It's got one of the greatest female characters ever uh, put on screen. And Lisa Eichhorn's portrayal of the alcoholic Mo character is brilliant and so well handled by the director. So when I saw that there's this, I was kind of, you know, I think part of my coming out of the Trump era was like dipping a toe back into trying to watch some of the 70s movies that felt still escapist to me. And that's how I found the George Siegel movie. And then 
don't even know how we started talking about George Siegel. I guess because he's in a movie directed by Ted Kotcheff or several movies directed by Ted Kotcheff. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, what else about North Dallas 40, Rick? I think we've covered quite a lot of territory. Um, anything else you want to get into before we wrap it up? Um, I think the... I think it's really, if, if, if I haven't pointed it out before, um, I think it's very interesting that this, this whole idea of um, uh, anti-hero characters uh, versus corrupt systems. Um, and to do that in a way that is, uh, that is uh, in, you know, informative um, and, uh, and, 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 and is a critique. And to do that across genre, you know, in, in different movies and for, you know, for a director to gravitate towards similar stories, um, again, creates uh, an interesting story about the director mm -hmm. himself. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's really fun and fascinating that, that you and I have kind of stumbled onto this guy as a director whom neither of us knew very much about. Mm -hmm. We know all the movies, mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't know about the, about the director himself. Um, here's the question I have for you. Is North Dallas 40, is it a comedy or not? It is because a comedy. Anywhere, if anybody goes to look up this movie before seeing it, you're going to see a description of it as a comedy. Or a well, you're going to see a... You're going to see a poster that's going to tell you it's a comedy. It's two cowboy boots with wacky characters coming out of them. Uh -huh. It is a comedy, but in but it's using the comedy to tell you as trenchant an observation about American culture and sports culture and the innate unfairness of the NFL as any as anything else. So it's comedy is is driving the Trojan horse. Yes. Uh, but it's so much more than that. Like all great movies are, you know, any great movies that's about anything is always about so much more than the thing it's about. And this is, a, this is an example of that. You know, I think the two other things for me is one, you mentioned there's only like nine minutes of football scenes, but I do want to say that for, for a football movie, these are some of the best filmed football sequences and the most realistically filmed football sequences I'm not sure how they did some of this because when Nolte's waking up, it's intercut with his memory of certain hits that he took that created the injuries that he's dealing with when we first meet his character. And they are brutally filmed. Like they're, I don't know how they did them so realistically, except to probably put people in those situations and have them take those hits. Um, but the action is really, which is always one of the most difficult and limiting things in any football movie Either the uniforms look so out of place and terrible, like in any given Sunday, that can't use any NFL logoing or color schemes, that it just looks so hideously unnatural, that it's so jarring, that however, you know, brilliantly it's filmed by Oliver Stone with 600 million cameras capturing every little thing, it just, it just rings false. The action rings false. Whereas this, which is done on such a low budget, still can't use NFL logos, but does manage to use some of the color schemes in a way that makes it feel real and familiar. The football scenes ring so, so true. And I think even though there's very few of them, they're really, really well done. The other thing is I wish someone, if you're listening, Criterion Collection, should really give this movie a cleaned up transfer 
and specifically the audio track needs to be cleaned up. The ADR is terrible in this movie in places. And it's really inexcusable for a film as important as this and as good as it is to, to be out there. Granted the, the print is pretty damn good. You know, the, the, the quality of the print that you can watch on Amazon prime that I watched on is, is pretty good. So it's not so much that, but they do need to do a pass on the audio. It needs to have some special features. It needs to have, a commentary by Ted Kotcheff, who's still alive and working, uh, and Nick Nolte. I think they're all very rightfully proud of this movie, and they've all said interesting things about it in articles that you can find online. Um, this is a film that deserves a better. It deserves a better uh, DVD, even though I'm probably the only person who still watches DVDs. You don't think that uh, Kotcheff is doing some kind of uh, uh, Chris Nolan thing with the uh, with the uh, audio where it's. Uh... Deliberately no. undermixed no. and muddy. No, he's not. Body. Unfortunately, it's just ADR. You know, it's like they must have filmed on the fly, and like, you know, it's in, it's in, it's in moments of the film where you would expect it when they're driving in the car. You know, you're not going to get good audio when you have Mac Davis and Nick Nolte, you know, in a car with the windows open, even though they're being towed on a on a camera rig you know, they had to redo the dialogue later. Uh, and it's just, it's so jarringly obvious to me that takes me out of the movie. And I don't like that when I can, when I experience that. Uh, and of course it's just part of the Ted Kotcheff thing where I'm kind of like, this guy's movies need to be, need, need to be collected and they need to have background materials to them because he's one of the great, uh, great film directors. Maybe he's the greatest Canadian film director. I don't know who the other great Canadian film directors are, but he certainly would have to be up there based on yeah. the handful of films that are great. Now, there's also a bunch of films that aren't so great, you know, but um, he's, he's a working director and that's kind of the thing that I think we're, we're hitting on. So if you haven't seen North Dallas 40, if you're not a football fan, there's a lot in here that you're going to love. If you hate NFL football, if you hate the culture of sports, if you hate toxic masculinity, you're going to like this movie. If you love football, and you accept the warts and all stuff that comes with the sport, you're also going to love this movie. Yeah. Um, I would, I would encourage uh, your, uh, your wife, you know, if, uh, if <laughs> you know, she walked in in the first 20 minutes and said, said, you know, this is gross. Yes. Uh, um, you know, if she had had the opportunity to, uh, to sit up for a little longer, um, you know, she's a very intelligent person mm -hmm. and that she would have been able to pick up on, on she the, would have. the subtlety yeah. of what was going on here. Let me ask yeah. you this before we go, Jason, because I, this afternoon I looked at um, this movie on Rotten Tomatoes mm -hmm. and they were giving the critics, the meta score on the Rotten Tomatoes was an 80. Mm -hmm. The aggregate scale on the audience was a 70. Mm. And I was shocked. Really? Why? Did you think the audience score would be higher than the critical score? I thought a the critical score would be higher, and b that the audience score would be higher than the critic than the uh, uh, than the critic score. Well, I, I think that's entirely to what you were talking about. It's like look at the marketing materials for the film, you know, which understandably it's a hard film to market. You know, you had to go the comedy angle to get people interested, probably because if you had a dramatic poster, and you could have had a dramatic poster, like it's a '70s movie with all of the inner turmoil of the post 60s generation figuring it out you could have had a very serious poster but i don't think anyone would have went to see that movie based on that poster 
Mm-hmm. And you had to have the wacky, you know, animal house. It really has the same type of color. And I think it's drawings and cartoons. It's kind of like an animal house type poster, similar era. Um, so it's easy to miss what is subversive and great in a movie like this. Whereas when you, when, you know, when we mentioned Slapshot, written by the secretly great Nancy Dowd, you know, I wonder if Slapshot's numbers are, are they're probably greater because A, you've got Paul Newman. So you have a movie star of a caliber that is going to attract attention no matter what. Nobody in this movie is that type of a star. Um, and Slapshot is more, has more pure comedy. And it also has some pathos going on too, but it's not quite as, as eviscerating a takedown as this is because you're dealing with minor league hockey anyway. You know, this is really as prescient a takedown of organized NFL sport as has ever been made. And it would be when you asked about remaking it, you know, when ESPN tried to do ballers and other sorts of things that the NFL squashed out of its economic might, you know, I don't think anything could ever be made again that would tell us as much truth about the NFL, even as it exists today, as North Dallas 40 did in 1978 or 1979. Have you seen Concussion? I haven't. That's the Will Smith. I've seen that. Yes. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, That's a, that's a different slice of the terribleness of the NFL. Well told, not a great movie, uh, but a worthy film. If you're going to be an NFL movie completist. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that uh, your podcast audience knows that um, there's there's uh, some there is some great football in this. There the 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 twelve minute pregame locker room scene is, is a movie within itself. Astounding. The acting is amazing. Uh, if you're uh, if you're into seventies, uh, 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 you know, man ass. There's lots of that. <laughs> And How about that great scene though, where Mac Davis is at the Coca-Cola cooler and Nick Nolte's character is walking away from him about 40 feet away. And he goes, Hey, poop Coca-Cola. <laughs> and he just throws it without looking and Nick Nolte yeah. without turning around catches it. I mean, that's no. a great scene. These guys, I mean, they're broken, but they're good athletes. They're too. good athletes. <laughs> These actors are good athletes. So they, are. they are. That. I'm telling you, this movie is, you're going to, if you sit down and watch this movie, it's a 91, 92. Somewhere in that area. hundred percent. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm surprised the audience didn't give it more than that, but Hey, all, uh, all authoritarian systems are imperfect, Rick. Perhaps that, that's what we've learned today in our, our discussion about North Dallas 40. And that includes rotten tomatoes. Right. Only you and I know what's really going on. Okay. Well, I'm ready to stick it to the man. <laughs> well, we've known that's true. <laughs> all right. Buddy, thanks for coming on. It was great to talk to you. Let's do it again soon. All right. Well, I tried a lot harder this time, and I'll see you at uh, Adult Children of Divorce Therapy. (laughs) Sounds good, buddy. Take care.